Hello, my name is Graham and I lead the events team at the college. I just wanted to let you all know that we've been working a way to convert our programme of educational events and courses to make them available online. So log on to rcoa.ac.uk forward slash events to see a full list of all available events and courses. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to this podcast by the Royal College of Anaesthetists in concert with the Obstetric Anaesthetists Association. My name is Will Harrop Griffiths. I'm Professor of the Practice of Anaesthesia at Imperial College London and a humble jobbing anaesthetist from St Mary's Hospital, Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. But this is not about me. This is about my three fantastic guests whom we have brought together this evening to talk about obstetric anaesthesia. But... If you've come here wanting to talk about the recent pandemic, you're in the wrong place because the the subject of our talk this evening is essentially don't mention the C word. We're going to talk about obstetric anaesthesia in the absence of a pandemic as far as we can. And ladies and gentlemen of the panel, there will be fines if you mention the C word. (laughs) I'm going to start off by inviting each panel member, starting with Nula Lucas to introduce themselves, say a little bit about what they do for a living and a little about what their specific interests are in obstetric anaesthesia. Nula. Thanks, Will, uh, and thank you for asking me to contribute to this podcast. So I work at Northwick Park Hospital. It's a busy district general hospital. In addition to that, I'm currently acting honorary secretary for the Obstetric Anaesthetist Association and I chair the education subcommittee. Um, my major interest in obstetric anaesthesia is really care of the high-risk woman, uh, complications of obstetric anaesthesia, and promoting safety in obstetrics in general. That's fantastic, Nura. Thank you very much indeed. Felicity, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, and, and thanks, Will. Um, I, I'm um, immediate past president of the Obstetric Anaesthetist Association. I work at Queen Charlotte's Hospital in West London. And really, from the day I walked onto Labour Ward 30 years ago as an um, anaesthetic SHO, I've been gripped by obstetric anaesthesia. And my main interest is uh, improving safety on on Labour Ward, uh, where I think the anaesthetist has a a central role to play. And I think a major part of that is is, um, training in obstetric anaesthesia, which I've been involved with both here and in various far-flung places across the globe. Thanks, uh, Felicity, I haven't heard that you were no longer the uh, president of the Obstetric Anaesthetics Association. Was this a coup, or was this the end of your predicted term? It was the end of my predicted term and freedom. And who has taken over from you? Um, Dr Chris Elton from Leicester. Very much indeed. So we come to the last of our panellists, David. Uh, hello there. Thanks very much for inviting me, Will. Uh, I'm David Bogod, an obstetric anaesthetist from Nottingham. Uh, like my uh, co-panelists, uh, uh, my uh, it's by far my most consuming interest is working on the obstetric unit, which I still do for a, a full, very long day every week, despite the fact that I'm approaching retirement rapidly. My main interests uh, are in the human factors uh, and relationships uh, amongst the various staff groups within the obstetric unit and how those impact on practice and safety. Uh, I have a bit of a background in 
medico legal matters and so i have a strong interest also in consent capacity the legal and ethical aspects of obstetric anesthesia as well david felicity Nilo, you are most welcome now we're going to start off with you david and we're going to ask you to take the opportunity to talk a little bit about a project at the royal college of nieces that you've been very much involved in indeed arguably originated which looks at safety and looks at supervision and looks at training. Uh, it's called the Cappuccini Test. I wonder if you could spend a couple of minutes just talking us through that and what its relevance might be to obstetric anesthesia. Yes, uh, thanks very much, Will. Um, Frances Cappuccini was a lady who, who died, died shortly after giving birth uh, as a result, uh, primarily, uh, technically at least, of failure to maintain her airway adequately after extubation. Uh, but behind uh, Francis's uh, untimely death was a uh, relatively junior anaesthetist working alone uh, without uh, obvious supervision. And indeed, many years after the event, after many uh, legal inquiries, we were still unable to identify who was supervising that trainee at that time. Uh, Francis represents just one of many patients who have come to harm uh, that I've investigated over the years as a result of uh, or absence supervision. And so her family have very kindly allowed me to use her name in addressing the issue in a safety test. Uh, and the Cappuccini test is a, a very simple practical audit which can be carried out in your trust tomorrow, uh, where you get hold of any trainee or non-autonomous staff grade or SAS doctor working alone, and you say to them, uh, who is the consultant supervising you at the moment? Uh, and how do you get hold of them? those two questions. You then use the information from this second question to get hold of the consultant and see whether indeed you can. And you then say to the consultant, who are you supervising at the moment and what are they doing? Uh, and um, are you free to assist them within the next five minutes if required? Uh, that's, that's within hours, out of hours. I suspect you might need a little longer than five minutes. Um, and that very simple set of questions as seems to be a very valid way of determining how well practically supervised individual anaesthetists are and how well the supervision chain functions. And we've applied it uh, very kindly as a result of the participation of uh, council members of the college. We trialled it in their own trusts very effectively, not just in the obstetric unit, I have to say. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, we've rolled it out uh, through the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the quality control mechanisms of the college uh, and uh, the safety anesthesia liaison group. Um, so it now forms part of the um, guidelines for the provision of anesthesia services uh, and is part of the QI book as well. Um, what we're anticipating is that the cappuccini test which uh, in which the department of health has shown some interest will be rolled out to other specialties as well it's easily applied to anesthesia but it should be uh, applicable to other specialties as well with very minor modifications uh, and i'm pleased to say it's starting to be used overseas as well a colleague of mine is starting a consultant job in new zealand and is applying it over there in his own hospital there and i'm seeing some results from around the world as well so, David, would you expect, if we take this to the obstetric context, would you expect, for instance, the consultant on call out of hours to be aware of exactly what the, for instance, trainee anaesthetist, uh, uh, who is the duty obstetric anaesthetist, is doing? And if they're doing a cesarean section, would you expect that consultant on call to know about it? Uh, 
Well, so far, well, the, the cappuccino test has really been tested out during office hours, as it were. But of course, it has to be to be valid. It has to be rolled out to to outside office hours as well, the night time. Uh, and, and it seems to me that I don't anticipate a situation. I don't think the college will anticipate a situation where every trainee contacted their consultant before taking a case to theatre. But I do anticipate a situation where it was entirely clear between those two groups or between those two individuals, what cases it was appropriate for the trainee to be carrying on while knowing that there was a consultant at the other end of the phone and what cases required consultation and probably attendance as well. Uh, that seems to me to be the key issue out of hours. So from the point of view of supervision of trainees out of hours, it's, it's having a set of rules for when that trainee contacts the consultant, knowing which consultant to contact and being able to communicate with that consultant. Yeah, I think as a on the practical side of things, our, the chart that we use for anaesthesia carries a, has got a, a prompt on it where the trainee writes down the name of the consultant who is supervising them at that particular time. And I think knowing your name is going on an anaesthetic chart is quite a strong impetus to ensuring that you know what your trainee is doing. It certainly focuses the mind. Felicity, you'd like to say something? Um, yes, I think in obstetrics, though, the, the issue is a little bit broader because it, we don't just give sort of anaesthetics in, in obstetrics. So um, it's important that the, the supervising consultant is, the name of the supervising consultant is, is known to the wider team because the anaesthetist is not just um, a giver of anaesthetics, but of analgesics, of resuscitation and of care of the sick patient on labour ward and in all of those roles the trainee um, needs to have a supervisor so the added challenge is to make sure that the entire team knows who that supervisor is. Uh, uh, Felicity, the, uh, the guidance on staffing maternity units published by the Association of Anaesthetists and the Obstetric Anaesthetists Association I think the last one was about 2015-2016, um, was signposting an increased duration of consultant presence, both obstetrician and anaesthetist, on the labour ward. Can you foresee a time when there will be resident consultants and anaesthetists on a labour ward? And particularly I was thinking about the larger labour wards and those labour wards that manage a large number of higher risk obstetric patients. So my answer to that is very simple, is it's inevitable. Um, in fact, I was talking to one of my trainees who just one week ago got her consultant job and she said she was absolutely convinced that sooner rather than later in, in her consultant career, she, she would be um, resident, um, resident on call, resident as a supervising consultant, whether delivering the care at first line is not so clear. Um, I don't think, I think the only thing that's stopping us being resident now is funding um, and, and numbers as well. Um, basically, there aren't enough obstetric anaesthetic consultants to provide the cover that I think uh, is necessary and we're going to see and will match what um, what is being provided by our obstetric colleagues. Uh, Felicity, when you say a resident on call consultant, I, I do think specifically that there needs to be an obstetric anaesthetic consultant on call overnight, 
or can that condition be covered by a non-obstetric anesthetic consultant covering a range of specialities that includes immediate availability for things like airway difficulties or major obstetric hemorrhage? Do you think it's important they're obstetrically trained or that they have a broad training? Would that be sufficient? Okay, well, I will answer that in two ways. If it was one of my grown-up daughters on labour board, I would want an obstetric anaesthetist. Um, in practical terms, I think that is wishful thinking. And in fact, um, the OAA and um, um, GPAS, and in fact incorporating the AXA standards, says that if cover is provided for labour ward by non-obstetric anaesthetist and non-specialist, then that anaesthetist must do some sessions um, on labour ward during the day to, to keep up their expertise. There's a growing number of units that have a separate um, obstetric rotor, but they're still well in the minority. David, I think you had a point you wanted to make. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to labour it. I just wanted to agree with Felicity 100%. I think it's absolutely inevitable that we will have cons resident consultants in, in obstetrics and obstetric anaesthesia on labour ward 24-7. Of all the specialties, of all the, the business that anaesthetists get involved in, obstetrics is more 24-7 than almost anything else I can think of apart from uh, accident and emergency. Uh, and it just seems to me to be, a, 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 you can't support logically the idea that there's an, a consultant there at random hours during the day and then suddenly at night they're not there anymore. We shouldn't have two standards of care. And you're not just saying that because you're about to retire at all, David. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, re I'm really not. I've, 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 I've spent some time recently uh, living in as a resident consultant anaesthetist on the labour ward and I'm say I, I found it a lot more comfortable knowing I was within a couple of minutes of theatre than thinking I might have to rush in in the middle of the night. Before we come to you, Felicity, I just going to ask Nula, you are by some distance the youngest of our three panellists. Uh, do you support <laughs> the prospect of being resident on call in the Labour Ward of Northwood Park Hospital? Do you think it's inevitable? Do you think it's the right thing? Are you happy about it? Um, well, I, I largely agree with David and Felicity. And I, something that particularly resonated with what David said towards the end of this conversation. Like David, um, I have also recently been resident um, during a particular period of work. We're not going to name that. <laughs> um, and I, I, again, I felt it actually very reassuring um, in contrast to being at home, lying in bed, although you have the comfort of your own home. But in contrast to that and wondering what's going on, I found it quite reassuring being there and being on the ground and being immediately available. So I think it, it, despite the constraints, um, the funding and the impact on the daytime service, if we shift a lot of consultant working to, to nighttime, I think it is inevitable at some point, although I wouldn't be I would be hard pressed to put an actual time on it. But I, I suspect in the medium term, it will come to pass. Felicity, you had a point. Um, I, I was really going to I was going to risk being shot by you by mentioning that word. But I think Every obstetric anaesthetist um, consultant I've talked to has talked about how much more comfortable it felt being resident on call. It it felt like we were do we were able to do a better job, and and you know for someone of my advanced age, you know, sort of in my dotage, it's actually much easier to be resident on call rather than face jumping in the car. 
and yes. avoiding speeding points as you try and get there in time. Now, Felicity, it's very common that one ends up talking about consultant and trainees providing care on the labour ward, but there are other grades and other people who are very commonly in the labour ward. And I want to start off by asking you, as the immediate past president of the Obstetric and Easters Association, what you see as the role of SAS doctors in delivering obstetric anaesthetic care. They're very closely involved throughout the country. Um, and do you think that this role will grow? Do you think it will develop? Would you see SAS doctors as being lead obstetric anaesthetists, as being that resident person overnight supervising the duty anaesthetist? How do you see that developing? So we know that a large amount of the um, sort of um, service delivery currently is provided by SAS doctors. And I think we're, to a certain extent, sleepwalking towards a disaster because I believe that, uh, um, I mean, a couple of years ago, they made up um, a large proportion of, of those providing obstetric anaesthetic care. The numbers haven't changed since 2015, although we know the demand um, for care has increased. And nearly 40% of SAS doctors um, are in the 40 to 55 year age range, I'm not that far from retiring. So we rely on them. I think we have to wake up to the fact that we may not be able to um, find enough of them. So it's they play a vital role. Um, we're going to have to think of a way of making the the role of SAS doctor on the labour ward a really attractive option to attract them. And what about anaesthesia associates? The you know very shortly the GMC will start to be the registering body for anaesthesia associates. Although their numbers are small, I, I've met few anaesthetists who cannot foresee a significant growth in the number and uh, role of anaesthesia associates in the next few years. Do you see them playing a part in the delivery of obstetric anaesthesia? Um, I, I think obstetric anaesthesia is so much more than just putting the blocks in. Um, I don't see a clear role for associates in the same way as I do see a role for them, for example, providing regional anaesthesia for, for um, routine lists. But um, obstetric anaesthesia, putting the block in is just the first step. But I think really I should hand that question over to David because he's probably the only man in the UK with first-hand knowledge of non-medical providers of obstetric anaesthesia because he trained them. So David, you're being dobbed in to speak now and I certainly recall you saying with pride that you are working with a midwife who had been trained to do epidurals. Is that right? No, uh, <laughs> we wanted to train midwives to do epidurals and the, mid, the, uh, the midwifery hierarchy refused to allow us to do so. This was some, we're talking 15, 17 years ago now. I actually trained an, one nurse and one uh, ODP to provide epidural uh, analgesia in labour and they did it, carried on doing it successfully for many years. Uh, both have now finally stood down from their roles and, and gone on to greater things in the nursing and ODP professions. Uh, but uh, they, it was, a, it was a lesson for me uh, as to how to train, to, to 
facilitate people to do what is essentially a highly complex technical skill, but with a lot of behavioural aspects as well, and how you can do that outside the world of medicine if you concentrate on it and 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 motivate people appropriately. And in fact, we ended up with two highly skilled technicians whose success rate for epidurals and, uh, and whose dural puncture rate, for example, was considerably lower than that of our senior trainees, or at least two of our consultants. <laughs> so could, can I press you and say, could you foresee a role for anaesthesia association, the delivery of obstetric anaesthesia in the UK in the future? I, I, I certainly could. Again, I, I, I accept what you said earlier about me not being around to see the results. Uh, and so I think I, perhaps I can talk a little more freely that, or, or think about it a little more freely than others. But I think that it's about training. It is not about the position you hold. It's about the training you've had and the support you get. It's all about, and support particularly, if you've got a well-structured department with good relationships, you should be able to train individuals to deliver a certain range of technical skills and behavioural skills effectively and safely. Felicity. So we were discussing this um, today uh, with my trainees and unanimously the trainees were not keen and one of them said that um, she, she was saying I mean there's so much to obstetric anaesthesia but um, she said if, if we had these highly skilled technicians putting the blocks in, it means that the, the trainees will be deprived of the, um, jo quote, joy of taking pain away. And, and that was part and parcel of the satisfaction uh, we get from providing obstetric anaesthetic services. So they were worried about being deprived of that aspect of it. You know, I think that's beautifully put. There is an absolute joy in the relief of pain. As my old obstetrician friend used to say, that an anaesthetist flutter in on angels' wings. <laughs> well, we've been talking a little bit about politics, but I'm going to bring it right back to clinical obstetric anaesthesia now as we play the platelet game. Now, I'm going to give you a scenario in which a perfectly fit woman having her first baby request an elective caesarean section. She is well and her pregnancy has gone absolutely brilliantly, but there is one small problem that you have to encounter. She has a low platelet count. This is the thrombocytopenia of pregnancy. These platelets are perfectly smart. They are fully capable of doing their job. There's just a low number of them. And what I'm going to do with you three now is starting at 100, count slowly down in gaps of five until you feel uncomfortable about doing the spinal. I don't want you to put your hand up. I want you just to go, no, when I get to the number that makes you anxious. Are you ready to play the platelet game? Any questions? Do -do 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 100. <laughs> 95. 90. 85. 80. 70, 65, 60, <laughs> ah, we've lost, we've, so we've lost David at 60, but we're going to keep going, 60, 55, <laughs> and we've lost Felicity at 55, but Nula's still in the game. Well, I'm, I'm only still in the game because you've left out a couple of vital bits of information. <laughs> 
Okay, so we've had 60, we've had 55, and we've had somebody who doesn't like playing the platelet game, Nula. This is important, and this is clinically important. Tell me those important aspects. So you haven't told me what her airway looks like, and you haven't told me what her BMI is, because it's never just about deciding to do a spinal or an epidural. It's about deciding what you're going to do if you don't do a spinal. It's always balancing the risks of one against the other. So are they more or less likely to get a spinal hematoma if they're a difficult airway and they're obese? No, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. You have to estimate the risk of the hematoma in the, however many plates she's got against the potential risks of managing her airway and causing a, a massive hypoxic brain injury. So you can quantify that. You, you'll do your best to quantify and assess those risks um, and likely discuss them with her following Montgomery. But I don't, I, I think that's this constant focus on a single number of platelets being the, the magic threshold that it's safe and then it's suddenly not safe to do a spinal or an epidural. I, I think we're completely missing the point. And it's always about risk assessment of what you will do instead. So, yes. Yeah, and it is beautifully argued. She's got a BMI of 24.3 <laughs> and a neck and a jaw to make you envious. Where, where, where are you going to shriek? Um, I feel conscious that this is being recorded, but I think that in somebody like that, where the risks of general anaesthesia are very, very minimal, but in reality, the risks of spinal anaesthesia, hopefully as an experienced anaesthetist, I'd be able to cite it reasonably quickly. I might undertake a couple of other tests to try and back up whatever decision I make, like point of care testing with the thromboelastograft, I'd probably do a coagulation. But I, I think that situation, I'd probably be prepared to go quite low, at least I would say to 60. But I would really discuss the pros and cons with the woman, um, the risks and the potential benefits. And, you know, this is, I mean, this is a routine case for us as a cesarean section, but this is the birth of a woman's baby. It's a, a hugely important time for that woman and her partner. So I think that we, you, you have to take all of those factors into consideration um, and discuss them with the woman. I think probably we overestimate the risks of spinal epidural hematoma most of the time in the presence of straightforward thrombocytopenia. You've got to remember that our hematology colleagues think nothing of doing LPs in, um, in very sick children and young adults with incredibly low platelet counts. So I, I'm, I'm also conscious that this is being recorded and we need to give advice. But I would suggest that my my starting point to really start get get to get concerned and really appraising the risks carefully would be about 70. But I wouldn't necessarily uh, stick at that point. But th th this but this is exactly the sort of advice which I think people need. And the advice that I'm hearing is this is not an absolute number. This is a spectrum of risk that has to be set into context with the woman and the other risks she has. And that is the best teaching and education that you can have. Felicity. So I think that's the point. It's, it's about, it's absolutely crucial to get the woman's informed consent. And that is challenging because you can't give her any numbers because you can't turn to the national audits because most of the time we don't put um, neuraxial blocks in, in patients with very few platelets, healthy or otherwise. So this is all based on speculation and common sense and expert opinion. So we have to be honest with the women and, and talk about um, 
theoretical increases in risk without being able to give her numbers and be honest about that. Nula. Can I, I just want to add one more point, and I, I hope this doesn't make me an outlier. But I do sometimes worry, as a committed obstetric anaesthetist, that we, we are totally obsessed with avoiding general anaesthesia. And I do think that the provision of general anaesthesia in any context is the cornerstone of anaesthetic practice. Um, and I've certainly been in situations where women have been, the, the potential risk of being paralyzed is a hugely catastrophic risk. So even though I haven't felt that it's been, I would have personally chosen a spinal in the situation a woman was in. Some women aren't prepared to take that risk. And I think we've always got to be able to provide and have confidence in providing safe general anesthesia. And I sometimes worry about the, the obsession that I hear from some units with the absolute avoidance of general anesthesia, which I personally don't agree with. David, I'm going to use this uh, patient and I'm going to bring her platelets down so low that any self-respecting obstetric anaesthetist, their eyes would start to water. Let us say 37 platelets, 37, so low that the platelets know each other by their first names. Okay. As an obstetric anaesthetist, if the, you give that woman a complete, competent, valid description of the risks and benefits of regional anesthesia and general anesthesia. And she turns to you and says, Dr. Bogod, I want a spinal anesthetic. Are you obliged to give her that spinal anesthetic? Or can you refuse uh, uh, something that you think is not safe? Uh, yes, the, the latter. So you can always, nobody can make you do something to a patient. What you can't do to her is give her a general anesthetic against her will. Uh, but you can, uh, with good grace, withdraw from uh, from treating her because you are concerned about the safety aspects of a spinal anaesthetic. But if this is an emergency situation, then you have to provide her with somebody else, at least, who might be able to do that. You, you, your duty of care extends to the point where if you're not prepared to manage her in the way she wants to be managed, you should be able to find her another opinion. But only if you can find a somebody appropriate within the, within the time context. We, we won't give you extreme examples that will force you into yeah. ethical blind blind endings. Felicity, you want to say? But, uh, um, I I think this this is about a concept that I I really believe in. That it's it's a very difficult concept, but the idea of the line in the sand um, for for a clinician um, beyond which the clinician doesn't even with fully informed consent on the part of the patient, doesn't provide the service that the patient is asking for. And it will vary depending on the, the clinician and the individual. But I, I, I really believe that clinicians need to, need to be supported um, if, if, the, if they reach that line in the sand. Now, when you say supported, coming back to you, David, let's say that, that we're in that situation. The woman is refusing a general anaesthetic, insisting on a spinal anaesthetic. You decide that you're not going to you're not going to do it. Would it be wise to have a discussion with a colleague? Obviously, if a trainee, you would talk to a consultant. But even as a consultant, would you be wise to talk to a fellow consultant and discuss the case with them to confirm your feeling that it's it is you are correct to refuse to give that spinal anesthetic or always always if you we the reason that we don't work 
you know, in little isolated pods is specifically because there is wisdom in numbers. Uh, and we should talk to colleagues, of course we should. But I think I should stress that this is a kind of situation which is put to me theoretically quite a lot. And indeed, I've even encountered patients who, uh, competent patients who uh, will not accept recommendations or who go against what seems to be the most sensible approach. And in that in those situations, I've nearly always managed to defuse it by putting the power back to the patient. Patients get recalcitrant and obstructive because they think someone is trying to make decisions on their behalf. The moment you put the decision-making process right back to the patient and say, I am here to facilitate your desires, you are the boss, this is your body, here's my advice, I'm going to go away, you have a little think about it nearly every situation can be diffused in those circumstances. And this really comes back to what you were saying, Felicity, is that the practice of obstetric anesthesia goes well beyond sticking a needle in somebody's back. It is the ability to manage those situations that actually makes an obstetric anesthetist what they are, makes all anesthetists what they are. And I mean, yeah. I, I, I would say to my trainees, you do need, you do need to remember that what looks routine, more in obstetric anesthesia than I think or in any other branch of anesthesia, what might look or feel routine to you is quite extraordinary to, to our clients, to our patients. You know, whether it is being in the most extreme pain you've ever been in and needing relief or the birth of your child, you know, it's, it's it's never routine and you always have to remember it and some people get very frightened a lot of our patients are very frightened and some of them express that fear with aggression or, or anger um, and you've just got to remember what an extraordinary time it is for them and Lula, i'm going to pursue this theme of ethical and sort of medical legal issues and I'm going to look about the woman who's refusing to have a cesarean section. It's a scenario which I know I've come across and probably you three are all sufficient experienced to have come across it as well. The woman who has a fetus on board with a deteriorating situation who fundamentally requires a cesarean section for whatever reason, perhaps failure to progress, and who refuses point blank for whatever reason, whether it be religious or cultural or reasons to have the cesarean section that you know as a clinician is required to produce a good fetal outcome not a good maternal outcome we're talking specifically about a good fetal outcome have you encountered the situation in your clinical career i have yes i think um the first point to say is that these situations don't, in, in the main, don't suddenly just appear. Of course, you can have a woman who suddenly has a fetal bradycardia. But I, I think the sort of scenario you're talking about is a woman whose labour may have been progressing slowly. The CTG has been deteriorating over some time. And I think it really uh, uh, underlines the importance of knowing what's going on, the, on on the labour ward. As, as members of the labour ward team, preempting problems, being aware of problems, talking to the obstetricians, the midwives, and starting to talk to the patients. I think for any patient, it's an incredibly daunting to start to hear, right, that's it, you have to have a cesarean section. So 
ideally, in most scenarios, you get a sense of which women are maybe heading towards needing an operative delivery. So you can start having those conversations to give women time to consider how they feel about that particular scenario. And I have met the scenario that you've described where we really wanted to go to theatre, we wanted to go to theatre quite quickly, and the woman was declining. And I don't, you can't, there's no one size fits all, there's no particular recipe, but I think just something that David said previously is that put the decision back with the woman. You know, I'm here to support you and to give you your choices. I will look after you the best way I can. This is my advice. This is what I think is going to lead to the best outcome for you and for your baby. And put the decision back to the woman. I think that any sense of um, being coercive, insisting, I don't think that's going to get you anywhere. And I think, again, it underlines why obstetric anesthesia is a, a discipline and, um, and not just a, um, a, another thing in anesthetics. I think it really underlines the, the human factors, the empathy, years of experience that I think that um, many, or we can all bring whatever grades, tra trainees, staff grades, associate specialists, consultants, those years of working on the lay board and dealing with those situations. And it, it emphasises David's point about if you give a patient the feeling that they are being coerced, they will push back. Absolutely. If you develop that relationship with them and make sure that they have trust in you and you give the decision making back to them, then they will often come to the conclusion that you would like them to come to and which seems to you to be the right conclusion. Felicity. Um, it doesn't always work, though. And um, during my career, I can remember a few cases where um, where the the woman didn't didn't want didn't want surgical delivery, and um, the, the results were catastrophic for the her offspring. And I think what I'm I want to say is in that situation, it's a really difficult situation, and all all the members of the team involved are. are adversely affected and if there was ever a time when you need to be able to support team members it is having to sort of sit sit through that sort of situation and I, I mean from you know the the consultant obstetrician to the healthcare assistant you know sort of waiting in theatre. So David you are our resident medical legal expert does the fetus itself have any legal rights? Um, legally, not until it's born. So the mother's autonomy or the autonomy of the woman carrying the fetus is not in any way impacted by the fact that she has potential life within her within her pelvis. Uh, very importantly, because it means you can't force a cesarean section upon a woman uh, for the purpose of saving her baby. Uh, so from the legal point of view, the fetus really has no existence until it is uh, it is born. That, of course, is not necessarily the case from an ethical point of view, and that's another argument for another day. So you could make a baby that's just been born a ward of court, but until the baby's been born, there is, there is no legal protection for that child. Yes, I think what the lawyers say is there the, the, the child does not have legal entity until it is born and therefore you can't, can't make it a ward of court and a coroner can take no interest, for example, in it uh, if it is born, if it is stillborn. But the coroner's interest uh, immediately is, uh, is brought into being if it has any existence outside the womb at all. David, thank you. 
you know, I could go on talking about ethics forever because I had a long list of technical questions, but we've actually used up most of our time having a very productive, I think, discussion that started clinically and then swerved towards ethics because inevitably sometimes it's the ethical and medical legal questions which are the most interesting about the things that we do every day. Yes, I could spend hours talking about whether we give 2.3 or 2.35 mils of heavy marquee mixed with fentanyl 35 or 37 micrograms, but the bottom line in the fascinating of anaesthesia and the fascination of obstetric anaesthesia in particular is managing patients, managing their expectations and managing their concerns and worries and delivering expert care at the same time as being in what can only be described as a human factors toxic soup sometimes in the operating theatre, but I won't go on about it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start to wrap up this, this uh, podcast. I certainly hope it isn't the last. I'm going to try and persuade the role of College of Anesthesia and let's do a few more so we can explore some of the technical aspects of obstetric anaesthesia. But I want to turn to each of the three of you just before we close down and ask you what the best or the worst moments that you've had in your career as an obstetric anaesthetist, and you will not, of course, be saying anything which could possibly identify the patient or patients involved in it. We're going to start with you, Nula, then Felicity, and then we'll end on David. Nula, your best or indeed your worst moment? Uh, well, my best, I really enjoy my job, and every case I do, I is fantastic, but um, I'll, I'll talk about my funniest moment. It was a, an urgent operative delivery. We brought the patient into theatre. The husband had been arrived and was parking his car, so he was only coming in when we were getting the lady sorted out. So he appeared in theatre and he rushed over and there was a lot of hand-holding, darling, darling, are you all right? And I think there might have even been a kiss. And then all of a sudden there was a scream, you're not my husband, you're not my wife. <laughs> um, and they, they were... Uh, they were rapidly relocated to the right um, partners. Were they terribly upset afterwards? Uh, they actually saw the funny side of it. They, I, um, I don't think they're identified. This is quite a long time ago now. But they were extremely gracious about it. Um, and it was all very, very good natured. So if they ever by chance happen to listen to that, um, thank you for giving me one of my more humorous moments in obstetric anaesthetic practice. Perhaps it should be included in the checklist. Is this the right partner? Uh, yes. Felicity. So I, I, I pride myself on um, being able to get informed consent with patients. And I will spend a long time talking to them about the pros and cons of uh, whatever procedure we're considering. And I remember one case vividly where I thought we were really communicating and I'd, I'd developed a real rapport with this patient. And after a good 30 minutes of discussion um, about the type of anaesthetic uh, she was going to get, she turned to me and she said, Doc, give me the risk-free option. And I realized my communication had failed. <laughs> so that was a low point. One of my high points was um, a patient who was not feeling in a good mood um, and we had a bit of a, a challenge um, getting her comfortable. But once she was comfortable, she turned to me and said, you'll be annoying, but you've done a great epidural. <laughs> <laughs> and last, but by no means least, Dr. David Bogart. I was, I was thinking about this and, and it occurs to me that you would like to, would imagine your worst moments would be 
terrible crises with women uh, having massive hemorrhages or pulmonary pul uh, amniotic fluid emboli, but they're not. In those you cope uh, because you've got the you've got the skills and the knowledge. It's inevitably my worst moments involve uh, um, fetal or neonatal loss in the operating theatre. I think delivering uh, a, a a child that is either dead or which is uh, shortly to die is a terrible, terrible experience, uh, whether expected or unexpected. Uh, and just like uh, uh, I think Nula was saying, it impacts on the on the entire theatre team. Of course, obviously the parents, but the the aftermath of that kind of thing can be quite can be can be quite terrible. And 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 debriefings, serious debriefing afterwards, and a further debrief sometimes later is what's required. And even then, it takes a long time to recover from that kind of experience. I think the, the stories that we have from all three of you says says a little bit about what I feel is the tremendous challenge and pleasure of obstetric anaesthesia. There is no other anaesthetic subspeciality where the highs are as high and the lows are as low and you are in the middle of helping everybody cope with those highs and those lows and that to me the human factors the inter the human interactions is the real magic of obstetric anesthesia but enough of that uh, I would really really like to thank the three of you for joining me this evening in the Royal College of Anaesthetists and the Obstetric Anaesthetists Association podcast on obstetric anaesthesia. We hope to run some more. So, Nila Lucas, Felicity Platt, David Bogod, thank you very much indeed. I hope you enjoyed listening to that podcast. Don't forget to check out more podcasts, as well as our online events and courses, at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash events. We hope to see you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Please don't forget to subscribe so you can keep up to date with our latest episodes. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists. <laughs>